The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, crypto and finance editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we have Chris Kuyper, Director of Research of Fidelity Digital Assets. Chris is a CFA charter holder who came to Fidelity from CFRA Research. He's the author of a Bitcoin first white paper arguing that Bitcoin should be considered different from other cryptos. Thanks for being here, Chris. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Darren. Uh, We were just talking a little bit about uh, Bitcoin and some of the pressures that it's facing right now. It's under pressure from rising interest rates, tighter global monetary policies, and uh, generally weaker demand for risk assets, particularly in tech. Uh, Bitcoin's trading around $36,000 now per coin. It's down around 9% in the last 24 hours and 22% this year. It's now about 50% below its all-time high around 69,000, which was last November. Um, So it's pretty clear that crypto and Bitcoin is in a bear market, just like stocks and other risk assets. Um, And we may be in another crypto winter, which would be a long stretch of pretty depressed assets. So Chris, what's your read on the situation right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit it on the head there with all the statistics of the the markets and what's going on. Um, You know, Bitcoin is interesting because over its long, very uncorrelated to pretty much every asset, whether that's equities, bonds, uh, even gold, commodity, or real estate. And so this was one of the very attractive things about it. And of course, you know, the correlation metric of uh, positive one would be perfectly correlated. A negative one would be perfectly uh, the inverse uh, correlated. So Bitcoin typically went around 0.2 to negative 0.2. And it went back and forth over many, many years for a while. And so it was uncorrelated. But that all changed about a year, year and a half ago when we started to see a rise in correlation. And right now we're seeing an extreme of that. So if you look at, say, the past 30 days, rolling days, uh, we've been as high as 0.9, so almost perfectly correlated to uh, the S&P 500, especially the NASDAQ. And um, this is then begging the question, you know, is this the, the, the normal going forward or is this kind of a temporary in Bitcoin's history. So the old adage is risk uh, rears its head. Correlations of everything tend to go to one. And so. Right. Um, so, I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, are we going to see, is this the new normal that Bitcoin is going to be highly correlated to equities, particularly tech and other risk assets going forward? And if it is, does that diminish the investment case for it as an uncorrelated alternative asset? I think if you look at Bitcoin and its properties, uh, I would suspect over time, because it's it's so detached from um, some of these regular macro factors, uh, over the long term, we would see it become uncorrelated again. And so right now it's very sensitive to liquidity and people are trading it like, you know, a high beta tech stock. And so at the end of the day, if, if that's how they're going to treat it, that's how it's going to trade. Um, but I think over the long term, you're going to see some of those 
core investment teams of Bitcoin come through. You know, it's limited supply. It's uh, issuance schedule that's already pre-programmed in there. And so I think, uh, again, especially if we look at a few years, you know, we're in a tightening cycle now. What happens when the Fed will probably have to once again reverse, whether that's the next recession or the next liquidity crisis? Uh, then we could see that decoupling of Bitcoin once again. Well, that, that's an interesting observation. Uh, I think there's a fair amount of data and research indicating that Bitcoin is quite correlated to Fed uh, monetary policy and uh, the global um, money supply. And when you have uh, kind of easing of monetary policies and increase in the money supply, um, that's been positive for Bitcoin and crypto overall. And in when we've had tightening cycles and a decrease in the global money supply, that has exerted pressure on Bitcoin, just as it has on other risk assets. Uh, that then raises the question is if we are in a cycle now of quantitative tightening um, and a shrinkage of the money supply, um, you know, we might be seeing a fair amount of weakness uh, going forward in Bitcoin until uh, the situation changes and um, monetary policies turn um, more dovish and more favorable to risk assets. Do you, do you share that view? Yeah, I think that is true over the short to maybe even perhaps intermediate term, uh, where I think you could start to see some decoupling or, or again, once, once um, some of this plays out, you'll start to see some of the, the very unique characteristics of Bitcoin. And one of them is that it's not corresponding to someone else. Sorry, Chris, you, you cut out a little bit there. Well, I was just saying it's a, a Bitcoin's a true bear asset, one that's an asset that doesn't have a corresponding liquidity, um, like pretty much all of our other financial instruments out there. And so we're in a system where we have a lot of leverage, uh, you know, debt to GDP at all time highs, corporate debt to GDP at all time highs. Uh, so I think as time unwinds, uh, you might see. Um, all right, Chris. Uh, collateral. Okay, you, you, you've been cutting out a little bit, um, but uh, let, let's move on because I have a few other questions. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Fidelity um, and the news that Fidelity made recently with um, an announcement that it plans to make digital asset accounts available in the 401k plans uh, it administers. Um, so this could be quite a big market for Fidelity, which has over $2.5 trillion in plan assets under administration. It's also controversial in Washington, where the Department of Labor has warned plan sponsors about making crypto available to investors. And, and it kind of raises a question, should people saving for retirement put some of their paychecks that would otherwise go into stocks and bonds into Bitcoin instead? Um, what is your view on that? Yeah, you know, we uh, we don't comment on individual uh, investment choices, but I think overall our research shows uh, Bitcoin does or could have a place in many portfolios. Now, of course, it depends on a lot of factors, um, but as we go through some of the investment thesis for Bitcoin, it's a potential store of value, uh, potentially emerging new monetary asset. Uh, and then it also has this technology play before it. So there's a lot of different investment thesis where it individual uh, in their portfolios. And, uh, you know, we're really excited about this announcement. And I think it's um, 
um, we're still in the stage where some people are, as you know, skeptical, but I think it takes a lot of education, you know, education about what this is, what the benefits are, and um, some of the benefits it can bring to someone's portfolio. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the long one of the main arguments for holding Bitcoin um, rather than just trading it is that it does have some actual use cases, some utility that it's some kind of an economic good, um, and the comparison is often to gold um, as a store of value. Uh, and then there's also a lot of discussion that eventually somehow Bitcoin could become um, a currency uh, that is used for perhaps everyday transactions or corporate treasuries. Um, but I, I think for it to, to, to make that leap from speculative asset or investment to a store of value and a currency, um, the volatility of Bitcoin would have to decline. Um, otherwise, you know, compared to gold, Bitcoin is still extremely volatile. And compared to other currencies, um, such as the euro or the dollar or the yen, uh, it's also very volatile. Um, and we're not seeing any of that volatility really come down. And if anything, it's, it's been elevated um, during these uh, kind of financial crises that we're having. Do, do you see any signs of what of volatility in Bitcoin decreasing? And what do you think it'll take to get the volatility down? Yeah, so we actually do see some signs if you look, look at the long-term data. So going as far back as you can, uh, the volatility has been wild, as you as you say. Uh, but if you draw a trend line through it, that trend line is going down. And so that is what we would expect as an emerging asset class, right? As it gets bigger, as more people hold it, as it gets more dispersed, as it gets uh, put into these different vehicles, as you know the derivatives markets uh, flourish around it, um, those are all going to contribute. And it's interesting you mentioned gold too, because gold had to go through the same process as well. Uh, if you remember, you know, we used to be on a gold standard. Nixon took us off in 1971. And then it was also made legal, once again, for people to own gold. And so we saw gold go from the fixed $32 an ounce, uh, rocket up to $800 an ounce, go down to $200, and now is at almost 2000 today. Uh, and, you know, most people would consider gold an asset class at 10 to $15 trillion. So I, I think it has to you have to go through that market process, that process of price discovery. And unfortunately, there's just no way to do that without some volatility along the way. Now, of course, you get the reward with it as well. You know, there's really um, no way to get one without the other. So uh, volatility is a concern, um, but it's something to be embraced along with the the reward. Uh, And then, of course, you know, it comes down to individual risk management. So position sizing, you know, look at Netflix, for example, down 75% as well. And it's had drawdowns of 70, 75% three or four times in its lifetime. Yet a lot of people still own Netflix. Uh, it's just a matter of how big a position in your portfolio uh, so you can manage that risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's talk uh, about the environmental toll that Bitcoin um, is taking. Uh, this is another controversial aspect of it. Um, it has a high carbon footprint. Um, due to the process of mining Bitcoin, which involves uh, computers trying to solve an algorithmic puzzle um, to validate a block of transactions. If they manage to solve that puzzle correctly and guess correctly, they win a Bitcoin. Um, There's a lot of mining capacity out there. More has been coming into the market. um, And the network's mining difficulty um, has been increasing 
all of which um, can be raising the carbon footprint and uh, electricity required to run the Bitcoin network. Um, there are some estimates that um, the global carbon emissions of uh, Bitcoin are about the size, or rather the energy consumption of Bitcoin is about the size of a country like Greece. Um, that, that raises a lot of concerns for ESG investors um, and anybody who's really concerned about um, you know, rising carbon and the impact on the environment. Um, do you think that this could be uh, an overhang for investment in Bitcoin? Yeah, certainly you, you've hit it there. You know, it's, it's a big question. It's a big concern. And I do think it is an overhang for a lot of people because they hear these numbers and they hear a little bit about mining. Um, but I think you really have to dig into um, putting this in perspective, first of all. So, you know, number one, you mentioned carbon footprint, um, but then the electricity usage. Well, electricity usage is not equal to carbon emissions, right? And by many metrics, Bitcoin is actually the greenest industry out there. Approximately 60% of its energy use comes from renewables, a lot of uh, solar, wind, um, flared natural gas, that sort of thing. Um, but really, you know, it gets down to understanding the value here. And so when you hear things like the, the minor difficulties getting higher, um, that is true. But what that also means is the network is getting more secure. It's getting stronger. And so, you know, what, what, this does and why this is needed um, is for a mechanism to have this network that's decentralized come to a consensus. And so that's really important to, to um, bolster the network security. So it's kind of the feature, not necessarily a bug, um, to have something so uh, vague or virtual like a Bitcoin, um, it's really important to have it anchored to something physical. So you're taking a very virtual thing. How can I have confidence in this virtual thing? How do I know it has value? Well, you know, at some point in its history, someone expended real-world computing power and electricity to create that Bitcoin. And that's what really anchors it into the physical world and what gives us confidence in its security and its worth. Okay. Um, so I'd like to, like to remind the audience to submit a few questions or submit your questions, and, and we'll take a few um, in, a, in a few minutes from now. Um, I'd like to just ask one more question, Chris, uh, about another big trend in crypto right now, which is Web3. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with that, that is the idea that the internet itself could transition to a blockchain-based web uh, that has a, a somewhat more decentralized ownership or governance structure than what we have today, where we have large companies and intermediaries that largely control our web experience. Uh, they process the financial transactions. They control, the, they have the ownership and control over our digital assets. Um, web3 is supposed to sort of take some of that and spread it out among uh, individual users and grant them some ownership rights if they participate um, in kind of the token economics of running these networks. Um, Ethereum is a big uh, player in this. Uh, it's a proof of stake network that runs on a different kind of consensus protocol than Bitcoin, which is proof of work. It's far more scalable than the Bitcoin network. And there are lots of other uh, blockchain networks that are likely going to be part of Web3. Uh, I guess my question for you, Chris, is do you see Bitcoin playing a role in Web3? 
And then secondarily, there's a lot of competition between Bitcoin and other cryptos for investment assets, for currencies. And will Bitcoin be relevant in a, in a Web3 world? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Very interesting one, uh, because, as you point out, a lot of the Web3 stuff has been centered around some of these other uh, blockchains. And so we recently wrote a report called Bitcoin First, Why Investors Need to Consider Bitcoin Separately from Other Digital Assets. And, and really, the, the thrust of it was, we think Bitcoin is best understood as a monetary good. So again, that, that store of value, that ultimate uh, pristine collateral, right? And then there's all these other projects and tokens that are very interesting, but they do different things and they make trade-offs. And so uh, they might have a lot of value for different things than a monetary good. So maybe digital identity or um, some of these other applications you hear about with DeFi and all of this. Uh, but I think we're seeing, and it's, it's very hard to tell, but I think we're seeing a world emerge where Bitcoin is still kind of that, that anchor of, of value. And again, this gets back to its properties as the most decentralized, the most secure, the one that is linked to the physical world, the world of, of physics that you can't fake or, or corrupt. And so uh, it will be interesting to see. And I, I think we're so early. It's kind of like the early Internet days when people could see some of the things like, well, you could put an encyclopedia online, uh, but they could never imagine these new business models like like Uber, you know, linking all these things together. And I think Web3 will be the same. We're, we're starting to see how you could have you know, ownership of your own data or how you could have ownership of these digital assets. But uh, I think we're going to see something that we can't even imagine in the world. Um, but just looking at Bitcoin compared to other, these things, uh, nothing's really changed in that thesis. It's still the most decentralized, the most secure. And so I think that still plays a very predominant role uh, for many, many years to come. Okay, let's take a few questions. Um, there's one from Sriam Kumar who writes, um, while Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are totally against crypto, will there be a long-term adoption for crypto and a possibility to prove these guys wrong? <laughs> yeah, great question. So they are um, very colorfully against Bitcoin, as we, we know with their comments of rat poison squared and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I, I think... I think you've seen this with other things. You know, a lot of investors didn't understand the internet, and rightly so. A lot of it looked kind of high expectations, pie in the sky during the dot com boom, right? Uh, but there's real value there. There was a real technological innovation, a real breakthrough, and Bitcoin and digital assets represent a real technological innovation. I mean, um, Satoshi Nakamoto in the Bitcoin white paper solved a long-standing problem in computer science going back to the 70s and 80s, even. And so there, there is real value here. And I think like other technologies, it just takes time for different people to come onto that adoption curve. And you've got the, the innovators and the people who want to get in first. And then you've got the main uh, swath of people and then the, the laggards at the end. So you're always going to have some laggards who, you know, eventually will come around to it. Uh, but I think it will follow that same kind of that S-curve technological adoption as we've seen before. Okay, uh, Frank asks, with cryptocurrencies, the bulwark of decentralized finance, what are the threats to cryptos posed by central banks and national digital currencies? So these would be CBDCs that countries like uh, China um, have already started to deploy. 
Yeah, they're they're not so much in competition because they're at least to me they're not the same thing. Um, so if a central bank launches a CBDC, you know, it could be uh, a token that's on a blockchain like network or architecture, and they could either force people or or, or try to persuade people to use it like a currency. Uh, but the key thing it's missing is that decentralization. They're, you're always going to have the central bank in charge. And so they're really kind of two completely separate things. It's like, you know, a country creating its own Internet or something like that. You know, it would be um, different from the main Bitcoin network uh, that everyone else is still using. So I, I think there's a lot of benefits that could be achieved there, but there's also a lot of uh, concerns and uh, risks in terms of, of privacy as well. One thing I wanted to ask, Chris, is about a potential new systemic threat um, to Bitcoin from algorithmic stablecoins. So there's been some that have been in the news lately, uh, Terra USD, most prominently. Um, this is run by uh, the Luna Foundation. And what they're doing is buying Bitcoin and holding it as a reserve asset to maintain uh, to help maintain a peg for Terra USD to the dollar. Uh, so, for people who aren't familiar with stablecoins, these are digital tokens that are designed to maintain a fixed value of one dollar. Uh, the big ones are Tether and USD Coin. They hold uh, dollar-based reserves um, to maintain uh, their backing and peg to the dollar. But algorithmic coins use other cryptos um, as reserve assets. And uh, the Luna uh, Foundation has been buying a lot of Bitcoin um, to backstop um, Terra. Do, do you see that as a potential risk for Bitcoin? Uh, no, I, I think it'd be quite the opposite, actually. Uh, and we wrote a few notes about this as well uh, recently. And then, of course, you've had the news that you mentioned where they've bought even more. Um, going back to my comments about Bitcoin emerging as kind of this anchor in this new digital world of, of assets, uh, I think this is a data point or, or one big factor of how we're seeing this play out. So you have a stable coin like Terra, and like you mentioned, you don't want it to uh, be centralized. You don't want to have a central party that's in charge of backing it with dollars, like some of the other stable coins that are out there. Uh, so what do you do? Well, you back it with other assets, and one of the assets they're choosing to back it with, at least predominantly, is Bitcoin. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Again, Bitcoin being the first and foremost monetary good, the one that has the most uh, attributes of a good money and the one that has, uh, you know, the hard rock scarcity built into it. Uh, and so I think that's why the foundation chose, if we're going to back this with other digital assets, uh, Bitcoin makes a lot of sense. And so they're really, um, they're really, you know, joined at the hip. Um, and of course, we'll see how it turns out. You know, algorithmic stable quantum. So uh, we hope it, it does work and, and we'll continue to, to watch it. But um, uh, again, I think, you know, it's providing a lot of uh, buying power as well, especially as Bitcoin is out. Uh, they've been stepping in and, and providing a bit of a floor with their loss. Yeah, I think the concern is that the, if there's a run on one of the algorithmic stable coins, uh, then uh, the backers of that stablecoin may be forced to sell a lot of Bitcoin to meet redemption requests, uh, and that could pressure the Bitcoin market. And we haven't seen it so far, 
but uh, maybe I think that's that's a rising concern um, as these algorithmic coins uh, gain market value. Yeah, certainly. I, I think that's a good concern or, or risk to point out is, um, you know, we haven't seen long-term history of these algorithmic ones yet and others that have tried different flavors of, of algorithmics uh, have had problems with the, the, the run or the redemption issue. So um, hopefully, you know, given the size of this reserve and some of the new techniques they're using on the, uh, you know, how they actually maintain the peg, uh, hopefully this one will be a lot better. But uh, I think you're exactly right. That does need to be recognized as a potential risk. Okay, so Ashish asks, what's a good way to hedge Bitcoin and crypto assets in a portfolio? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, not giving any specific financial advice, but of course, uh, we see people go to the derivative markets. There is a growing derivative market for Bitcoin itself. So uh, depending on, you know, your jurisdiction, where you live or what you're allowed to do, uh, that would be one option. And then as we mentioned at the top of the call, just the increased correlation, uh, if that continues, you know, a potential investor could could theoretically hedge by just um, doing kind of a normal hedge on, on tech stocks or equities or, or especially high beta equities as well. Okay. Hal asks, what are the regulatory risks uh, like from the SEC? And this could go in a number of different directions. The SEC has stated that it believes many cryptos uh, should be uh, classified as registered securities. It hasn't specifically come out and said that uh, Bitcoin would be one of them, but uh, we know that the SEC is looking at this area very closely, potentially developing some guidelines for what cryptos would qualify as securities, which would imply that the backers of the cryptos would need to register them, as would the exchanges. Um, do you have a sense of uh, where this is going and whether Bitcoin will um, somehow escape um, from rules or not be not come under rules that may uh, be imposed on many other cryptos? Yeah, so we do have a little more clarity on Bitcoin and Ethereum from the SEC. The SEC has um, stated, although maybe not as formally as some would like, but there are uh, some statements to say we do not consider Bitcoin a security. Uh, but to your point, the question is about all of these other things. And so while they haven't come out with specific rules and guidelines and they haven't, um, you know, besides going after some of the uh, the, the largest scams in itself, um, they just haven't come out with what which ones or what kinds classify as security. So that remains a looming risk for anyone looking at these that uh, at some point they could be classified. And so we'll continue to hope for more clarity. I'm, we certainly don't have any special crystal ball there, but um, the more clarity we can get, uh, the better for, I think, the whole industry, because they would rather just uh, like to know where everything stands so they can adapt accordingly and, and move on. All right. Kenneth asks, what is your second favorite crypto and why? <laughs> I don't have any you know, favorites uh, other than to say uh, I do think you have to bucket these cryptos into two different categories. And, and like our paper says, which you can find on our website, we think Bitcoin deserves its own category as uh, emerging monetary good. And then all of these other things are in kind of like a venture capital bucket. So just like venture capital, high risk, high reward, I think you've seen that play out with a lot of these other tokens. And so that would be uh, my 
my recommendation is when people look at these, look at these like that, where you're probably going to have, uh, you know, if you took a sampling of 10, a uh, couple will work out, but most of them will likely fail. And we've seen that already. If you look at data, you know, the top coins of 2017 versus the top coins of today, uh, only two or three are still on that top list. Uh, most of them are, are defunct at this point. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, this is a very um, emerging area of technology, and people should keep that in mind if they're considering investing in any individual uh, tokens. You know, these are not things that uh, necessarily have long-term cash flows or any uh, kind of traditional financial metrics uh, that we can latch onto and say this looks like a, a good buy, like it would be a stock. Um, and it's hard to know what's actually backing a lot of these projects. Um, so um, if you're going to invest in altcoins, um, do so uh, cautiously and, and diversify and spread your bets out. Um, would, would you agree with that, um, Chris? Yeah, those are all excellent points. And, and to even draw the analogy further to equities, you know, my original background is in traditional finance and equities. It's almost like if, if some of these companies uh, sell a token to raise money and they're still at the idea stage and the idea is to raise money while they're building this out. Um, they're kind of bootstrapping it as they go. It's, it's the analogy is you're participating in an IPO, but you're really at like the seed round stage, right? <laughs> it's very, very, very early upstart yet you're taking uh, a potential stake in some of these companies. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being here, Chris. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again on Monday. Barron's Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin will be chatting with Deputy Editor Ben Levison and Charles Lemonides, founder of ValueWorks, on the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.